Steve, I don't know if it gets any better than that. I trust that the Lord was pleased because that is uh, actually the only thing that matters, isn't it? I was blessed and I trust that the Lord was pleased. Well, today we continue our series from the seven churches in Asia, and we have come to the third church, the church at Pergamum. Now, the way this works is that the Lord would begin his address to the churches by saying, I know your deeds, and then he would raise the issue with which he wanted to address. For instance, the first church we looked at, the church in Ephesus, the Lord said, I know your deeds, and then he points out all the positive things they were doing, but he said, I have something against you because you have substituted labor for love. You're doing all the right things. I commend you for what you are doing, but you simply don't love me as you once did. And so he addressed that issue. When we came to the second church, the church in Smyrna, it was a church that was being persecuted. It was a church that was suffering. There was tremendous poverty within that church. They were being imprisoned because of their commitment to the Lord. And so the Lord then used his address to comfort them, to encourage them in their faithfulness because they had been faithful to the Lord. Well, today we come to the church in Pergamum. One of the interesting characteristics of this town to me is that they had the second largest library in the world at that time. It had over 200,000 parchment scrolls in it. Well, about 300 B.C., the ruler of Pergamum decided that he wanted to expand the library. And so he was able to persuade the librarian from Alexandria, which had the largest library, to come and work in Pergamum. That didn't sit well with the ruler of Egypt. And so in retaliation for losing his librarian, he imposed an embargo on Pergamum. They could no longer receive papyrus, which was the material on which they wrote. Well, the people of Pergamum, an industrious people not to be dissuaded, they developed the tanning of animal skins so that they could use it for writing, and the Latin word for that process was called parchment. So when we look at the city of Pergamum, I want you to understand, and we'll see this a little bit later, that it is a religious city, but it was also an academic city. Now, as Jesus addressed the churches, another thing I noticed is that he refers to himself in different ways according to their need. For instance, when he wrote to the church in Ephesus, he said I, the, that I am the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So... The point that Jesus was making to them was concerning his presence. You're, you're, you're doing all of these good things, but you don't love me as you once did. And he said, I am walking among the churches. So he speaks about his presence. Now, when he addressed the church in Smyrna, the church that was suffering, he referred to himself as the one who was dead and has come to life. I think the point that he was making to them is that I have been through it too. I know that you are suffering. I know that you are being persecuted. But I want you to know that I have been persecuted as well. I have suffered as well. And then he comes to the church in Pergamum and he refers to himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. 
So obviously, it is going to be a little bit different message to the church in Pergamum. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse number 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. All right, now the outline of our message today is fairly consistent throughout his address to the seven churches. He begins here with a word of commendation. He says, I know your deeds. He always says that. I know your deeds. The Lord knows what is happening in his churches. Now, in verse number 13, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. There are those who believe that when Satan was removed from heaven as Lucifer, he was removed from heaven, that he was sent to hell. Well, he was not. The Bible says that he is the prince of this world, that he walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So you need to understand that Satan is not in hell. He is doing his work on earth. And as Jesus addresses this church, he says that you dwell where Satan's throne is. Now, I do not believe that he meant that literally, that literally Satan has his throne there. But Pergamum was known as an immoral and idolatrous city. It was the center of emperor worship in Asia at this time. In fact, they had built the first the first temple to Caesar Augustus in 28 B.C. So they were known for their emperor worship. They also were involved in the worship of pagan gods, of the Greek and the Roman gods. There was an altar to Zeus there in Pergamum, Zeus being the chief god of the Greeks. There was a, a temple to Bacchus, the goat god in Pergamum. There was the God of healing that had a hospital there. There was also the temple to Athena, the God of wisdom, art, and war. So there was all this paganism that went on in the city of Pergamon. So it is no wonder to me that Jesus said, I know where you dwell, that you dwell where Satan's throne is. Because there was tremendous idolatry in this city. Now again in verse 13, he said, I know where you dwell. There are two Greek words for dwell. One carries with it a temporary idea. 
It is the one that is normally used in the New Testament. It, it is a sojourner, a foreigner, someone who is passing through. So there is the word that is usually used in the New Testament to speak of someone who is passing through, but they are not permanent. The word that is used here is the other word. It carries with it the idea of permanence. That they were there, they were permanently there in this city of idolatry and they could not escape their ungodly environment. In other words, they're going to have to deal with it. They couldn't move somewhere else. They were not going somewhere else. They were there permanently. Therefore, they were going to have to deal with the situation at hand. So Jesus commends them in verse number 13. He said, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus commended them for their devotion. He said, you hold fast my name. Now think of that. They live permanently. They're not going to leave. They live permanently in a place where there are altars and temples to all these pagan gods that other people worship. But he says, but you did not deny my name. You did not deny my name. It reminds me of Thomas. We like to, and I sort of take the side of those people, you know, who get beaten up on a lot because... I've not always been perfect. There was a time when I wasn't, so I sort of identify with some of those people. But you know Thomas, old doubting Thomas. But one of the things that is blessing to me about Thomas is there was a time when Jesus was going somewhere and the disciples said, oh, you don't want to do this. They're going to kill us when we get there. You remember what Thomas said? Well, let's just go die with him. I mean, he didn't deny the name. Let's just go die with him. But that was these people in Pergamum. They lived in a city that was filled with idolatry, but Jesus commended them by saying, but you have not denied my name, and he said, and you did not deny my faith. In other words, they did not deny the Lord, the name of the Lord, nor did they deny the doctrine of the Lord. He mentions Antipas. Who was Antipas? Antipas is said by some historians as probably one of the first Christian martyrs, one of the first to die for his faith. There are those who believe he might at one time have been the pastor at Pergamum. His death was unusual. Tradition says that there was a brass bull that was made he was placed inside the brass bull. There was a fire built under it, and he was cooked to death because of his faith in Jesus. So Jesus says to the saints of Pergamum, you have stayed faithful in the place of Satan's throne. You know, that has been characteristic of the people of God. They have been marked by faithfulness. Abraham I'm always, every time I read the story, I'm always touched, amazed, and challenged by that time in Abraham's life when God said to him, I want you to take your son Isaac and sacrifice him to me. Now, as a father, I cannot help but ask myself the question, what would I have done? And I'm not sure that I would have been as faithful as Abraham. 
Take your son Isaac and sacrifice him. Now, the Bible says that in his heart he actually did it because he believed that, that God would raise him from the dead if necessary. But he did it. He was faithful. I, I look at the story of Moses. Now, Moses was raised in the palace of, of the Pharaoh. He was educated in the University of Egypt. He had all of that identity, all of that privilege in his life, but he was faithful to the Hebrew people and he was faithful to the Hebrew God. He was faithful. Even though it meant that he must relinquish all of this prosperity that he enjoyed, he was nevertheless faithful to God. John the Baptist, faithful to the Lord, though he was beheaded as a result. The Apostle Paul, Faithful to the Lord, though he was executed for his faith. I have said to you, I think we are going to spiritually face challenging days. And I pray that you and I, if we do, will be faithful to the Lord. That God will give us the grace, he will give us the strength, he will give us the courage that is necessary to be faithful to him as he said to the people of Pergamum in the place where Satan's throne is. So there's a word of commendation. But then there's a word of condemnation in verse number 14. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Now, when Jesus issues his word of, common, of, of condemnation, he does not condemn them for being immoral. This is not a condemnation for immorality. Then what is he condemning them for? He condemns them because of their compromise with false doctrine. I think that this resonates with the church today. He said to them, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now, to read the story of Balaam, you will find it recorded in Numbers chapter 22 through chapter 24. Let me just give you the, the background, a little bit of uh, information about Balaam. Balaam was a prophet of God. He was one of God's prophets. He was hired by Balak the king of Moab, to curse the Israelites. So that was his job. He was, he was hired to curse the Israelites. He did not do so. The Bible says in Numbers chapter 20, uh, 23, verse number 8, How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? All right, so here is Balaam who has been hired by the king of Moab to curse the Israelites but when he was given the opportunity, he said, how can I do that? God hasn't cursed them. How can I curse them? It wouldn't mean anything if I cursed them. So how am I supposed to do that? And he was given multiple opportunities to curse the Israelites, but he refused to do so. Well, then what's the problem? Balaam made a suggestion to Balak concerning how this could be done. Balak wanted the people to go away from God. He wanted them to be diminished. So how was this going to be done? He thought it was to curse them. He wouldn't curse them because he said God has not cursed them. But then Balaam made this suggestion. 
He said, take your daughters and use them to entice the Israelites. And they will lead them away from God and into idolatry. That's exactly what happened to Solomon, you recall. Solomon looked to the Lord. He had the wisdom of God, all of that. But the Bible says that then he married all of these pagan wives and they led him away from God. Well, that was the suggestion from Balaam concerning the Israelites. I can't curse these people because God hasn't cursed them. But he said, instead, entice them with your daughters and in time they will lead them away from God. David Zimmerman wrote, Soon the men are eating at the tables of false gods, sleeping in the beds of pagan women, and bowing themselves down to worthless idols. Now Moses noted that and condemned it. In Numbers chapter 31, verses 15 and 16, the Bible says, And Moses said to them, Have you spared all the women? Behold, these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord. The doctrine of Balaam was that they entice the Israelites with their daughters and eventually they would lead them away from God and into idolatry. It was a temptation of compromise. That's what the Lord's dealing with. I would especially stress that because, ladies and gentlemen, we live in a day when there is tremendous pressure to compromise our convictions. The Bible, is it the infallible word of God? Well, there are those who tell us, well, you know, the Bible is a good book. It's a, you can learn a great deal from it. It's a historic book. It's an ancient book. Some of it's true. Some of it is not true. Some of it works. Some of it doesn't work. So what is happening to us today is that there is tremendous pressure on the people of God that we compromise, not reject, but that we compromise the Bible. Some of it's true. Some of it is not true. And then that begins to weaken our faith. That begins to weaken our resolve. There is tremendous temptation today that we compromise the clear instructions of God's word concerning sexual morality. I read the other day that the National Cathedral is going to begin performing same-sex unions. There is tremendous pressure in that area that if you stand up for what the scripture says today, then you're going to be said to be an extremist. You're out of the mainstream. There's something wrong with you. That is the temptation that we are facing today. Salvation. The Bible clearly tells us there is none other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. There's only one name given by which we are saved and that is Jesus. But the world says to us today, well, you know, that's a little restricted. That's a little too narrow. I, I, I know people who are good people who don't believe that, who don't believe in Jesus. And so we are tempted today that we say, well, you know, Jesus is perhaps a way of salvation. Maybe he is the way you were saved. Well, there are other ways of salvation. Folks, that is not what Scripture says. It is not what the Scripture says. So 
If you can compromise the belief in Scripture, then you can also compromise the teachings of Scripture. But that was the temptation, and that's what Jesus said. The doctrine of Balaam attempts to wed the people of God to the ways of the world. That's it. Jesus said, I I have something against you. Some of you hold to the doctrine of Balaam. And the doctrine of Balaam, now listen to me, the doctrine of Balaam is to get the people of God wedded to the ways of the world. That's what we're dealing with today. And then he mentions the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Truth is, we are not sure as to who these people were. We, know, we don't know a lot about them. Uh, the, the word Nicolaitans, two Greek words, Nike. You're familiar with Nike. Some of you probably have them on. Nike means victory. And Laos means the people. So it means victory of the people. Now, what does that mean, victory of the people? Well, there was one commentator who said they taught that the grace of God was a license to sin. Now, there were people at that time who believed that. They said the more, the more, if we're saved by grace, then the more we sin, the more grace there is. So you sin more, so there's more grace. And so it is believed by some that the Nicolaitans then were those people who believed that the grace of God was a license to sin. And therefore, they sought diligently that the church should compromise with pagan society around them. Now that was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans apparently. That we are to compromise with the world and don't worry that it's contrary to what you have been taught because there's, there's, there's grace. We're saved by grace. We have the grace of God. So don't worry about it. Davis Dictionary of the Bible says a sect of Nicolaitans existed among the Gnostics of the third century. They too taught the freedom of the flesh. And they may have grown out of these corrupt Christians of the apostolic age. Isn't that interesting? Because there are so many Christians today who have been deceived into believing that you can ignore what the word of God says and compromise with the world and you're going to be fine because of the grace of God. Now, this doctrine progressively worked its way through the church. Still with us today, but it progressively worked its way through the church. In fact, if you look in chapter 2, verse number 6, the church in Ephesus, Jesus said, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, that was their position during the time of the church in Ephesus. But then when you look at verse number 15 in our text, thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You see how it worked its way through? They hated it over here, but as time went by, now then they hold to that doctrine. Folks, that's what happens to us a little bit at a time. We don't, we don't just make one leap from here to here. It happens a little bit at a time. We hate this doctrine because we know that it's contrary to the word of God. But a little bit at a time we get over here and then we embrace, we hold to the doctrine. That's what he says, word of condemnation. But then there's a word of comfort. Now there's a warning in verse number 16 first. He says, repent therefore or else I'm coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. So Jesus said to the church, you have to repent. You have to turn away from your compromising ways. You have to do that. You have to repent. He said, if you do not, then there is going to be judgment. 
And the Bible says it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of God. So the point that the Lord makes is, look, this is happening. You need to recognize it. You need to repent of it or there's going to be judgment. Then he makes a promise in verse number 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. To him who overcomes. To him I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone, new name, written on the stone, which no one knows, but he who receives it. Here's the promise. He, he says he will give some hidden manna. Now you know that is a reference to the Old Testament manna. When the people were in the wilderness and the Lord provided manna for them. There are some characteristics of that manna. First of all, it is, it is a gift from God. Manna is a gift from God. The Bible says in Exodus 16, 15, Moses said to them, it is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. It is the bread the Lord has given. So it is a gift. It is something that God does. It is sufficient to satisfy. He goes on in Exodus 16, 18, he who gathered much had no excess and he who had gathered little had no lack. All right. Now, when we're talking about the manna, understand that it is given by God and it satisfies who does that sound like? That was a question. Who does that sound like? Given by God and satisfies. Thank you. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? As a matter of fact, that's exactly what manna symbolizes. John six thirty two. Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Jesus is the manna who satisfies. In John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So what is the promise? Hidden manna. And then secondly, a new name. So when we come to Christ, we receive a new name, which is what Isaiah said. Isaiah 62, 2, and you will be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will designate. All right. So those who overcome, those who trust the Lord, those who are committed to the Lord, what happens? They receive manna, gift of God that satisfies Jesus. They receive a new name. They are now the children of God. And then he says in a white stone. There were several meanings for the white stone in New Testament times. First of all, it was used in judgment and trials. The juror was given a white stone and a black stone. If he believed that the accused was guilty, then he cast a black stone. If he believed that the accused were innocent, then he cast a white stone. So what does Jesus say? He says, I cast a white stone for you. He said, I have declared you as innocent. It was also used as identification. To the early believers, they had two signs that identified them as Christians. The fish, you're familiar with the fish, and the white stone. So it's identification with Jesus. Thirdly, it was used as a ticket, admission. When someone performed some great feat, they were given a white stone that allowed them into the great events of the city. So what is Jesus saying? I'll give you a white stone. That symbolizes your admission to heaven. That he gives you a white stone, your ticket to heaven. The place that has been prepared by God for those who know the Lord. So, let me close. Like the people of Pergamum, we are tempted to compromise our commitment to the Lord 
the scripture, the things of God. There is tremendous pressure today to be politically correct rather than to be scripturally correct. There's that pressure. He says to him that overcomes, if we are faithful, we receive a new name. We're the children of God. We receive the hidden manna, Jesus, the bread of life who satisfies, and we receive the white stone. We're admitted to heaven. That's the promise that the Lord makes to the people of Pergamon. As I have studied through these churches, I think that the church in Pergamon in this way is very similar to the church today. But Jesus said to him who overcomes, ladies and gentlemen, it is so important that we be the people of God today who overcomes the temptation that we might be faithful to the Lord. Our gracious Father, we come to you today and thank you for this reminder, the challenge that you gave to the church in Pergamon that applies to us. We also know that there is a challenge even now as we go into a time of invitation for those who have never trusted Christ to commit their lives to you. For those who are looking for a church home, I pray, Father, that they would feel comfortable with us if that's where you want them to be. Bless this invitation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir's going to sing. An opportunity for you to respond to the Lord. If you're here without Christ, my encouragement to you is trust Him. He will satisfy. Trust Him. If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you as part of our family. Stand with me, please. As they sing, you come, I'll greet you as you do.